Gentlemen, start your engine. Good afternoon, radio. For those who don't know, Radio Hotler. Thanks for coming and making time. It's on everybody's mind. For those who don't know, there's a big shebang. Sorry about that. Sorry about the little uh, um, um, technical goodies. Radio Hotler. Hot, 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 oh, cheers, boys. Cheers. G'day viewers and welcome to episode 151 of Radio Hotlap. This is a recording of the launch of the V8 supercar, Car of the Future, as presented by Mark Scaife, introduction by Tony Cochran at Crown Casino um, on the Monday directly after the Grand Prix. I thought it was a significant enough uh, piece of material um, that is very well presented by Mark. Um, he should have been in advertising, probably is. But yeah, have a listen to it. Um, it'll be around the news, no doubt, uh, already by now. But JP and I will be back with a episode on Wednesday or Thursday this week. Hope you enjoy it. Bye for now, viewers. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Tony Cochran, the Executive Chairman of the A2 Cars Australia. Good morning and welcome and thank you for joining us this morning and participating in uh, what I think is uh, probably the largest history making moment in the 14 years of what I term the modern championship. I think in a challenging world the only thing you're guaranteed of is change and uh, certainly uh, we at V8 Supercars Australia are not afraid of change. Uh, we embrace it, uh, we love it and we've certainly run with it very effectively over the previous uh, 13 seasons and uh, we're all now into our 14th season of V8 Supercars Australia. Uh, today hasn't just come about overnight. It has been the uh, work of nearly 18 months, the work of uh, headed up as a chair of this particular committee by Mark Scaife, uh, five times champion, five times Bathurst winner, and truly one of the greats of our sport. Mark, um, since he has come on the board as an independent director, has been invaluable uh, to the board in terms of his abilities and what he's been able to uh, head up as chair of this committee, looking at the car of the future. The car of the future um, has been somewhat hijacked uh, of recent days and recent weeks, perhaps by the media. Not unfairly, I understand it's a great news story, so I understand the, the reason for the hijacking. But it's been hijacked in the sense that um, everybody's focused on uh, what new manufacturers may or may not join us. And obviously that's a very big part of it. But a big part of it that has been overlooked is uh, the very real job that we have in VA2 cars of keeping our championship viable, keeping our teams viable and ensuring that we have a future of another 14 years at least. The current category, the current rules have served us extremely well. By the time we uh, finish them up at the end of 2011, some uh, uh, not quite two years away, um, those rules and, and the, the two main um, category has, will have served as championship for approaching 19 years which in world motorsport terms is an absolute uh, eternity. And uh, we're extremely proud uh, that uh, the rules of the category have served the motorsport public so well in that period of time. 
But what's very important for us, as I said, is the viability of our championship and the viability of our team. And one of the core reasons uh, the board set uh, Mark and his committee off on this uh, road is to look at uh, lowering the cost of uh, the cars, quite frankly. We're trying to bring the build cost of the car down to around 250000 dollars And one of the key reasons why we're doing that is that will evolve into the second part of our plan, which will probably release towards the end of this year or maybe early next year, which will see our teams needing to be able to turn their cars around in two weeks. Clearly that's not possible uh, without having spare cars. And uh, clearly on the current costing spare cars for many teams would be an absolute stretch. So there's a lot behind this, there's a lot of detail behind this, there's been an awful lot of planning that's gone into this and we spend an awful lot of money getting to this point in time. Money that we think is very, very well spent on behalf of all the teams in our championship. Because at the end of the day, we are predominantly a team's organisation. There are 18 uh, rec holders running 29 cars in our uh, championship. And uh, it, is our, it is in our vital interest to make sure that those people have a huge future in our sport. And our sport has a huge future. So uh, without any more from me, today's day is really about Mark and Mark taking you through the journey of the car of the future and the outcomes from that. At the end of Mark's session, there will be a full Q&A session and we've asked two of our directors and two uh, leading team owners to sit in on that. One representing each side of our current manufacturers. Uh, we've asked Tim Edwards and Roland Dane to join us in that Q&A session. Because I think what's really important here is you need to understand this whole plan has a full endorsement of our board and the full endorsement of every team in our championship as we uh, look to build a very, very good future on the exciting future we've already built. So without any more from me, Mark Scott. Thanks, Tony. Welcome to Crown Casino for a pretty exciting uh, part of our history in terms of what car the future holds for us. Um, how about 50 years of car safety? You saw that first graphic. Uh, certainly, the automotive industry has come a long way. Um, this morning's presentation is more like a car company walkthrough, a little bit like a product planning session, sort of combined with an advertising agency pitch. So, as I said, Car of the Future is the core of our business plan. Um, as Tony said, we've worked very hard on this. Fortunately, it has unanimous support from the industry and we've got some key messages. And you can see them be saying this over the next 20 minutes or so, but it's evolution, not revolution. We must enhance the DNA, the authenticity of the car is vital to us moving forward. We must, above all, look after the stakeholders and turn our reference to the teams being such a big part. And 75% of our supercars, clearly their interests need to be preserved. And the business models that each of those teams have, I visited basically every team of the other brand giants, and it's it's one of those um, issues where each of the businesses have separate skill sets, they have different expertise, different uh, levels of knowledge, different levels of manufacturing. So what we're going to do as a consequence of this whole plan is to ensure that we keep those stakeholders in business. The board gave this committee some very clear mandates. It needed to have a V8 engine, it needed to accept the 85 fuel, it needed to have a target cost of less than $250,000. It 
it needed to be rear wheel drive in race form, it needed to be lightweight, and it needed to have <coughs> improved safety levels. Sorry, excuse me, boys, I was cheering for Mark Weber all weekend, obviously didn't work very well for me. Um, but we must continue to improve the show. A big part of what we're doing as a consequence of everything uh, within Car of the Future is to make sure our entertainment act is very, very good. We know that the quality of racing is imperative. We also know that we need to be in touch with the Australian automotive industry and the Australian sporting landscape. If there's one racing driver pile that's out of, out, of, out of car tomorrow and the way that we're going to work forward is to have our vision up. If you drive a race car and you drive off the front of the bonnet, then you don't prepare yourself for what's coming. The way that we're looking at this, our vision is up. We're being aware of what's happening in Australian sport. We're not the only sport looking at, at exactly these sorts of things, and we need to look at where the car industry goes over the next 10 or 15 years. So to get to where we're going in the future, you need to have a little look at the background first. And we've steeped in fantastic history. The Bob James, the Norm Beaches, the Peter Brocks, the Alan Moffats, the Jim Richards, the Fred Gibsons, the Colin Bonds, the Pete Gagans, the Craig Lowndes, the Jamie Wincups, the Garth Tambers. We have got an incredible array of champions over 50 years of touring car racing in this country. Not only do we have champion drivers, but we have champion teams. Whether it's Brock's old Holden dealer team, whether it's Triple Eight in today's exercise, whether it's HRT, whether it's Moffat's Ford dealer team, whether it was the Gagan's Castrol team way back in the 60s. We've had a fantastic history of racing in this country. We've also had a vast array of manufacturers I mean, not many people would know that the 1986 Volvo won the Australian Touring Car Championship. So, as a consequence of having a vast array, Alfa Romeo, Jaguar, the young Brad Jones and a Mitsubishi Starion, Toyota, BMW, Rover, Nissan, Mazda, and obviously Volvo Ford. So, across that period of time, as I said, we've had a great history of legends of racing, we've had a great history of fantastic race teams, we've also had huge manufacturer involvement, and the whole manufacturer ethos has always been win on Sunday, so on Monday. We've also got, as a consequence of all that background and history, some iconic events. Bathurst is the Stop the Nation Day in Australian sport. Clipsal, now Townsville, now Sydney. We've got the makings of a fantastic base that we can work from as our background. When we got to the end of 1992, our manufacturers were effectively Holm was still involved, BMW, Ford and Nissan. At that stage, we were spending five and a half million dollars a year on a Nissan GTR program. They were low volume units, they were 500 cars to go racing. They were special models, they were extremely high cost, and some of them weren't sold in Australia. So it certainly didn't bode well in terms of what the basis of the industry was like and what the marketplace looked like at that stage. We had to make some decisions about what technology base we would go with. We had to ensure that we put a basis from 1993 in place for, to have a successful series. And what Tony referred to before is exactly what we've got today. We chose a medium tech alternative. We weren't high tech like DTM, like the German Train Car Championship. We weren't low tech like NASCAR. We, we sat right in the middle of that. It was Heartland V8 supercars where we were at. The overall objective, and Larry Perkins was a big part of this, the overall objective of the change in 1993 was not just to reduce the cost, but to have a mentality that a tuning shop could go and win the races in that day. And 
1993, we changed from Nissan at the end of 92, spending five and a half million dollars, rolled into 1993 with Holden, spending four million dollars. So roughly 25% drop off in what we, were, what we were spending. Everybody effectively spent less when we went to Ford and Holden's category. The big part of the Ford and Holden category was, as a tuning shop, as a, as a contestant, as a competitor in that series, you could go and plug parts from manufacturers from around the place and build effectively kit cars. So we went and bought an engine from Holden Racing Center, we went and bought front uprights from Larry Perkins, we went and bought a diff housing from Ron Harrop, and we went to the first race meeting at Amaroo Park in 1993 and we were the first Holden. So you can have a mentality of having a customer base as a tuning shop to win races. Now clearly that's changed markedly over a period of time. <coughs> Those cars that you see on your screen there, Larry Perkins, Glenn Seaton were two of the mainstays of the series for Ford and Holden at that time. But right through to Russell Engel and their Shane Van Gisbergen and the latest model cars, they've come a long way. We know that still we need to reduce costs, we certainly need to be in touch with the market. And after the years of development, then those cars are markedly better than those original early cars that we, that we raced at that time. So I just want to take you through a little market snapshot of the evolution of, say, 15 years of V8 supercar racing. If you go on and do a business analysis, and we've done a very comprehensive business analysis because this is the core of our business plan. If you go on to the Reserve Bank calculator and you work out the cumulative inflation, the CPI, cumulative inflation of cars from that era, 1994 Commodore was valued at $27,000 a month place at that time. If you then apply the Reserve Bank calculator of inflation, a car actually should be just under $40,000. It's in the marketplace at just under $35,000. It's effectively tracked 11% below inflation. Now, if you're in a car company presentation and someone was taking you through that planning cycle of how cars evolve, what they would also put into that package of being below inflation in terms of value for money, they would also put feature content into the car. So they would say ABS, airbags, traction control, electronic stability control. They would put all those features into a cost that the market would have a perceived value over. So what I'm saying is that the $35,000 is exceptional value because you haven't taken feature content into that equation at all. A 2008 or 2009 or 2010 Ford or Holman is massively better than what a 1994 model was. If you apply the same science to racing, in 1994 we spent $4 million to win the Touring Cup Championship. If you evolve the reserve bank number into what it will be in modern times, it becomes $5.9 million. It's effectively 20% above inflation. If you also apply the same feature content to how we believe, so we think now it's about $8 million to go and win uh, in this series, $6 million, 5.9 is the track number from $4 million in 1994, so 15 years of evolution. We think that what that's done is in feature content land, if you compare a 2009 race car versus our 1994 race car, they are immeasurably better. The competition's better, the season's longer, um, we, do, we do more events, and certainly the build of the car is massively better than those early cars. So, 
when you get to the point of analysing where we really are and we track that against other things, the landscape has changed dramatically. As I said, more races, longer season, the races are closer together and the competitions improve, feature content and the development of those cars over that period of time have basically doubled our budget over that period of time. So it's 20% above what the Reserve Bank calculator would apply it to. The car industry is 11% below. So if you look then at a little analysis of the increased cost, and we've tracked this against some normal things in life. Um, this might be a little bit basic, but an Australian postage stamp is only 22% more expensive than it was in 1994. A Commodore sedan or a Falcon, and those two models have always been about $500 part for 15 years. So essentially, the cars are tracking below the hatch line as the consumer price index. The Big Mac is a McDonald's hamburger 70%, 77% up, and our VX supercars are 100% up. Alongside where that would be, We've tried to put our sport, so we clearly have an increased cost, we have a mandate to reduce the cost. We need to understand where our sport sits versus other sports. The GDP of Australia is about $1.2 trillion. The Australian government values sport at between 1% and 4% of GDP. So roughly between 10 and $40 billion is the value of sport in this country. We think, and we've put these numbers together, that VX Supercar Racing is worth annually about $450 million a year as a, as a business. So it's a, the economy of the sport is, is quite big. There's a lot of stuff that we don't put into that. We don't put event regional benefits into that. We don't put sponsor leveraging. So if Vodafone spend money in racing, we don't put their above the line spend in terms of how they leverage their input. So there's a lot of other monies to do with that number, but around 450 million is about where our sports work. And you've got to get that into context because essentially this is what this business plan's about. We're not just trying to be the preeminent, and we are, racing category as a motorsport category in this country. We've got AFL and cricket and the NRL that are competitive sports with similar demographic profiles to us. So our value for money is very, very important and where we sit in the total Australian sporting landscape is very important. The next part that I just wanted to quickly take you through was the landscape of where we are. Never in our lifetime would we have seen General Motors go into bankruptcy. We would have, you know, if we stood around in 1993 and went into this new category as we are, would we have said that General Motors, the number one automotive group in the world, would go into bankruptcy? I mean, it's just, it was just unheard of. Last year, in one month, the market in, in the States dropped 50% from 17 million units back near 10 million units. Um, there were massive government bailouts. It's the worst market condition for the automotive industry since World War II. And combined with the GFC, as I said, we've never seen a landscape change like we have in the last 12 months. But locally, we've also seen very similar things. Locally, we've also seen a dramatic market share difference. Again, never in our lifetime would we have said in 1993, Ford and Holden commanded just about 50% of the Australian automotive market. Today, Ford and Holden's combined market share is roughly the same as Toyota's. Last month, I know Chris, Chris Lowry might like this, but last month, Hyundai outsold Ford. So there are times 
in the automotive landscape change where you need to sit back and have a really good look at where we're heading. There's clearly big government bailouts in Australia, also $6.2 billion to the local industry, and it's had huge downstream effects on all of the industry in terms of smaller manufacturers, etc. So what I wanted to do, and the guys have been very helpful with this, is the total business. We created a total business SWOT analysis. We looked at all areas of our game, and then we broke it down into a big specific SWOT. So the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And normal Tony Cochran presentation land will go through the strengths very well, but we won't go through the weaknesses or our threats that well. Um, we, we believe that as a product, we've got a fantastic product. We know that Ford and Holden's traditional rivalry has served us very well. The battle of red and blue is a social fabric in Australia. It's a Labor versus Liberal, it's Collingwood versus Carlton. We know that it's been relatively cost effective. We know that overall it's got iconic status. A Bathurst, for instance, a Holden racing team, for instance, are iconic motorsport teams in this country. We know that it meets the market relevance. We know that we've been able to get across the DNA of the cars. We know that we've got a sound technology basis between DTM and NASCAR. And we know that Project Blueprint has worked for us very well to be able to have great parity and technical equivalency between brands. We know our rules and regulations have served as well. We also know that the look and feel is a key marketing platform that Ford and Holden have used very, very well. And in essence, it's the best touring car product in this part of the world. But when you take all that into context, and I won't go through all the other aspects of the SWAT, but there are, there are clear threats. And out of all those threats, what we've discussed at the board and what we've evolved into today are key messages. Evolution, not revolution. What we've got is very, very good. Manufacturer authenticity, the DNA has to be preserved. And stakeholder viability is above all the biggest thing about car of the future. We know there's some must-haves, and we know that we must be in touch with the fan base, and we must be in touch with the industry. So when you go through that, there is a genuine case for change. The cost of involvement, the cars are difficult to repair, there is a longer season. We want to ensure the quality of the racing continues to improve. We know that there are more events. Stakeholder viability of doing more events and having spare cars, etc., is very important to our industry. There's a lack of other manufacturer integration in our sport. We know that there are landscape changes in the Australian automotive market. And the Australia Inc., Australia Incorporated, has changed dramatically. The way that our social fabric, our culture, and the number of people that we have in the country, the immigration level, etc., has changed the sporting and cultural landmark in the landscape what we are today. And above all, the value for money versus other sports has to be genuinely good from a commercial standpoint. So if you take all those things into account, you have to start somewhere. And after the case of change, you've got to go with what the foundation of our sport is right now. We know we've got a very, very good foundation. We know this has served us very well. We know that we've got great parity between Ford and Holden. We know you can change brands in the off-season and come out and be competitive in another car. It's a, it's a fantastic base. So Project Blueprint has served us well. It's engineering equivalency. It's an ability for us to build cars on a sound platform. And it's, it's got an ability to bring other manufacturers to that platform. 
that platform was originally designed from cars in 1993. They were smaller Commodores in those days. A Commodore today is a bigger car. A Falcon is a bigger car. So the reality of what Project Blueprint has done is it served us well from a competitive standpoint, but it served us well evolving the size of the cars over that period of time. And if you said tomorrow, you wanted to have a Master 6, a Toyota Orion, a Nissan Maxima, that sound project blueprint foundation serves us well for the future. So it's the right basis as a project. It resolves the small differences. There are small differences between Ford and Holden right now. We've resolved those issues. HRT and FBR have been crucial in getting those two floors merged. Roland Dane's also helped in that evolution of changing our manufacturers. So we have now a project blueprint that will serve us well without small gaps between Ford and Holden in any way. It allows the DNA to be preserved. It also establishes the authenticity that I keep on saying is so crucial to us moving forward. And above all, it allows for what would be market relevance. So the immediate steps are to maintain Project Blueprint, conduct this gap analysis, which we're probably 90% down the track of by June, we'll have it finished. We'll incorporate some new regulations into the current rules. We'll, we'll have cost reduction and we'll have more control components but we will expand those lists in a clever way which will keep the category and stakeholders in business. So when you have a roadmap for change, you have to have a system. In the Racing Entitlements contract, the REC, there is a process-driven rule change. You have, to, you have to go with a system. So we've developed a very comprehensive system that flows through into fitting into a red, a blue, or a green box in every area of the car. And then what we've done is we've evolved that into a business case to be able to ascertain what's good for this business moving forward in every component, every area of our current cars. So for instance, a wheel, everyone in the industry knows that we're bringing in a new control wheel. Some guys are using it already. They're on the cars. They owe this business, they owe V8 Supercar Racing roughly half of what the previous wheels were. So when we go through the business case of each of the items, we can come up with a way of having a stakeholder viability built into those regulation changes and ensuring there's no competitive advantage or disadvantage, why wouldn't we be more clever about what we do with our regulations moving forward? And clearly the wheel is a great example of exactly that. So then we understood that you can control those things by a couple of different measures. You can control by cost, you can control by specification, and sometimes you'll merge those two things to ultimately end up with the best alternative. In every area of the car, we've then got a matrix for each part of the car where you fit into a red, green, or blue box. Now, it's difficult to read those, it's purposeful. Uh, we will go, we'll give you a booklet at the end of the day, and you'll be able to go through each of those line by line. We'll need no those to go through them in a presentation like this. So, what I've done is basically set those out that we all agree within the industry, but, it, but basically from the process-driven rule change evolves into a red, a green, or a blue box, and that will determine what we do with these components moving forward. Those things there will be finished by the end of June this year. So overall evolution, not revolution, a proper gap, gap analysis, significant team input, 
new regulations will come about based on a cost-benefit analysis and a process-driven rule change will be the mechanism for getting those things done. The biggest point of contention is the engine. We've got a couple of engines now that are from the Ford and Holden family. They've served us well. We could argue that they're too expensive in terms of their unit costs now. And in terms of reliability, they're about 5,000 kilometres as their maximum life cycle that we try to expand and are continuing to expand that life cycle. One of the things, if you wanted to start this whole business again, and what I explained to the team owners when we've done this presentation before is, if you wanted to start again, what would you do? You do a reverse brief. You basically say, what do we want from the engines? We want less than half the cost. The engines cost about $100,000 now. We want an engine for 50 grand. We want 10,000 kilometers life cycle. We want about the same output that we've got now, 600 horsepower. We want the engine to be lighter, and it needs to include all those ancillaries as part of that total engine mass. What are the key characteristics that it needs to have? It needs to be emission friendly, it needs to be modern, it needs to be able to run the 85, it needs to have flexibility to change rocker covers in, in the future, and it needs to have audible V8 grunt. So who can supply it? How can we Australianise it? What are the rules that are required to get that into play? What time frame is achievable? And what is the net cost benefit to stakeholders? The biggest thing about what we do with the engine program moving forward is that we have, we've got out there today is what I call competition. It's cooperation and competition. There are teams supplying a number of other teams and that economy of scale has worked very well. Whether it's been AAA, whether it's been Walkinshaw, there are, there are teams that are, that are doing that and teams are benefiting from being able to purchase those things or lease those things cheaper than they've been able to, to do them before. So whatever we do, We've got a base Ford and Holden engine right now. We're considering all the alternatives for a third engine to come into the series. And what we would do with that moving forward is not change the business model, but effectively have a more modern engine, hopefully for less cost. So we've gone through the VX and car technical guys have looked very closely at all the costs of all the engines from around the world that might be suitable. And we've graphed that cost per kilometre against uh, our current VX and car engine. So on the right-hand side of the screen, in the two orange columns are the current engine costs that we've got. So clearly it's a large part of our charter to bring this cost back over a period of time. So we've got existing engines, we're going to reduce the cost per kilometre. We want to have the ability to rebadge them. We need to really go through very carefully to what other engines are out there, and we do know that very, very well. In fact, we're a long way down the track on this program. We need to have, if a manufacturer wants to use an engine from their family, we need to have their DNA preserved. It may be that a manufacturer comes along and just uses an existing engine in their car. Or Toyota comes along and says, we want to run a four and a half litre all alloy V8, and we've got a comprehensive engine equalisation program being developed to make sure that that engine comes in and has the same outputs as our current engine. So there's a lot to do, again, with stakeholder viability as a consequence of that. So the engine is the key part of this whole thing. The next thing is, what do we actually want from the whole car? What do we want from other manufacturers coming in? What do we want from safety, engine, etc.? Clearly it needs to be safer. The vehicle mass needs to be reduced. We're going to put the fuel tank in front of the axle centre line, more like road car configuration. 
We're going to move the driver over to the left of the car as far as we possibly can. We're going to have improved side intrusion for safety in those sorts of um, side impact accidents. We want to make sure that from aero efficiency land, our quality of racing is as good as it can possibly be. You need to be able to come onto the straight at Phillip Island at 200 kilometres an hour and be less than 10 mil behind the car in front. We can do that today. So you, want, you don't want to change that aero efficiency. You want to enhance what we do as we move forward. We want other manufacturers to come and play, and we know that Project Blueprint is the right foundation for that. It will serve us well in the future. It served us well so far. We've discussed what engine alternatives are out there, and, and as I said, we're a long way down the track. Wheel diameter is a big one because the wheel diameter is part of what we do in terms of the quality of the show. If you increase the wheel diameter, you can increase the brake diameter within that, and that will help the consistency of the brake and the brake thermal capacity as we move into longer races and more difficult races like IndyCar, for instance. The rear suspension layout of the car will also be considered. What we're going to do is go with independent rear suspension, more like real cars, as in what the modern car has. We have a live rear suspension now, a live rear axle. It's old technology, it's costly, and we need to be more market relevant. So the key things will be in that change, wheel diameter, safety, rear suspension layout, ensuring Project Blueprint continues to work for us, modern emission standards from the engine that we're having, and the aero efficiency to make sure our racing is great. So all those things there in terms of, uh, in terms of the show, overtaking, tyre performance is a big part of this, what diff we use, what aero efficiency, and what race formats and circuit design are key elements in what tracks and what places we go to and making sure that we've got the best show that we possibly can. We are in the entertainment business, we all know that. So we want to grow the business, we want to reduce the cost base, we need to be in touch with the fans and in touch with the industry. Other categories all around the world have tried to do the same thing. There's not a motorsport category in the world today that is not trying to reduce cost. Some categories have been reasonably good at it, others certainly haven't been. Formula One, for instance, it's resulting in Toyota, BMW and Honda are all pulling out. NASCAR, for instance, you can't differentiate between a Chev, a Toyota, a Dodge or a Ford. In DTM, it's so high tech that the cost base is massively above where we are. The British Touring Car Championship is totally revamping its rules to have a complete different set of rules to reduce the cost. The Brazilian stock cars that you see at the top of the page there, they're like a silhouette formula. You can't tell what manufacturers are involved. So what we've got is a great product that we know that we need to evolve, not revolve. We know that we've, we're able to have a great product moving forward if we make the right decisions. For us to make the right decisions, we need to be in touch with the fan base, but we also need to be in touch with the industry. I am the Director of Styling for Holden, the General Motors in this country. We've had him coming and look at all the design trends of all the cars moving forward for all the different brands. One of the real things about these design trends is that from a styling standpoint, what car companies are interested in is what a car looks like from front three quarter. So if the car's at the front, from this angle, from front three quarter, it needs to be authentic. It needs to be like the road car. If you go and get a VD Commodore or an FG Falcon and you line those two cars up just like these, you line those cars up compared to a VZ Commodore or cars of five years back in our history, 
these cars look much more authentic. Because when we did VE, when we've done FG, the car, the front guard from the final headlight is exactly the same as what the road car is. So essentially, the design trends, the styling cues, are mostly from front three quarter. And that's what we're interested in in terms of where these cars go in the future, making sure that we can preserve the DNA. You need to be able to differentiate between a Ford, a Holden, a Maxima, a Mazda 6, a Toyota Orion. So we know we've got great competitors in this series right now. It's a great shot of Bathurst. Straight, three of the top teams in the country, four of the top drivers in the country at an iconic event. We know that they've been fantastic with us. Ford and Holden have been the foundation of this series. We do not want to do anything to disenfranchise them or give them any option for where they go in terms of having competitive teams in this series. They've gone and established factory teams. They've got the best teams in the category right now. And clearly, they've made a choice under that scenario to invest that money and to win the races. But we've also got to look in Australia Incorporated at a shifting landscape, a shifting market landscape and automotive landscape. We have to look at who could be potential competitors. And the inference there in terms of question mark is basically where we're at. We, we may, at some point, have other manufacturers come and join the series. But at this point, we've got to make sure that our regulations are, are meeting all the standards and all the parameters that we've set for ourselves as, a, as an industry. Sister stakeholders, evolve not revolve. Make sure that it's got the DNA. So if we said the authenticity, for instance, in terms of the industry alignment is the key point, and the stakeholder viability is also a key point, the sport's sustainability comes from that. The, the economy of the sport is massive. We know that we've got to continue to grow it. We know that the front three quarter look of the car is important. We know that we've got to embrace car companies' mentalities, their policies. A changing CEO, for instance, may be the difference between a car company being involved in motorsport or not. We need to be out of racing mode and in the industry mode. We've got to have a genuine alignment with the industry. We've got to understand long lead times. Car industries are talking in 2014, 2015 already. We've got to get our vision from off the front of the bike and get our vision out to where the car companies are using longer lead time and programs that they're already embarked on. And we need to walk through design studios anywhere and understand that we've got to have our vision up. We've got to have this in our brain if we're going to continue to grow the business. There are some significant cornerstones. We know it's got to be leading to large car. It's got to be four-door sedan only. It's, it's rear-wheel drive as a race car. It's got annual sales volumes of 5,000 units. It must be a V8, and it's got to have a target cost of $250,000, which is about 25% reduction over where we've been and where we are currently today. So as an industry, there's probably only a couple of ways of getting into this sport if we open the shop front. If we decide that we'd like to have other, other manufacturers coming along to play with us, these are the mechanisms. One, we go out and sell the concept, which has been a lot of talk and a lot of communication already. And there's a purposeful pitch for those companies joining us. We ensure that we've got market relevance and that we can enhance their product image. And the DNA, again, is vital. Or, on the other side, we simply change a few rules, which the rules are quite simple, and I'll take you through that in a second. We change a couple of very simple rules to open the door and have open entry which would mean 
that a manufacturer in 2014 who's got a car that's going to fit on the project blueprint will pick the phone up to Tony Cochran and say, Tony, can we race on this in Maxima? Or can we run on a Hyundai? Or can we run a BMW? If you've got open entry, then you've got longer lead times and you've got the vision of looking ahead as an industry. So the two key things are under either of those scenarios, red or blue, that if manufacturers are interested in coming to race with us, that we need to meet the market relevance plan. We need to be, from a market perspective, absolutely real and vital to what they would do. We need to be able to put a car on track to enhance their product image, and that the car must be competitive immediately. But proper parity is a real part of that in terms of project blueprint, maintaining that for us moving forward. For VAT Supercar, it's actually quite easy. We just remove the Australian May and the five litre references from our current rule. So we ensure Project Blueprint continues to pay for us and we may homologate <coughs> a third or a fourth high-tech engine that fits in with our reverse brief. So if you, we're going to make those changes, the, the piece that becomes the cell is it's open the shop front. It's going along with the landscape change. It's understanding the Australian automotive market has changed. It's understanding that sport in this country changes and that Australia Inc. is different from 1993. We, all, we must recognise that this market shift and those changes have changed the way we look at our sport and our industry immeasurably. And under opening the shop front, there are lots of scenarios. And this is the vital part of what I want to talk to you about tonight. The, the base scenario, if you said in three or four years' time that no other manufacturer wants to join the series, we've opened the shop front and the phone doesn't ring. If that happens, this business is still in a much better position. You will have a safer car. You'll have a lighter car. You'll have better quality of racing. You'll have a reduced cost base, a cost per kilometre that is significantly less than today, and you will have stakeholder viability. You'll have teams still in business. You'll have fans still going and, and sitting in grandstands. You'll have fans still tuning in in their lounge rooms around this country. It will not, it will not in any way detract from what we've got today. We'll have greater market relevance than we've ever had in the history of this sport. So if that's our base, if that doesn't change one bit, we're still in very, very good shape. But if it does change and the phone does ring, there's a couple of things that you should consider. First one is that it may actually be a team that chooses to differentiate itself without manufacturer backing. It may be that Roland Day in five years' time decides to run a Mazda 6. Or that Todd Kelly says, you know, I can pick the phone up and I can run an Audi. I mean, you can, you can go and do that, homologate that race car for racing in this country and use existing engines or a new engine that will be part of their DNA. So we will have enough scope, enough real-world automotive understanding and expertise to be able to bring people to this school. And then at the maximum input, it may be that when the phone rings and Nissan want to run a car for Gary Rogers, for instance, Gary builds six Nissan Maximas and supplies those cars to other people within this industry. I mean, there are varying levels of input. There are multifaceted aspects of their involvement. And in, in terms of our business, we cannot go away from those opportunities. Clearly, embracing this change is very important. Ladies and gentlemen, that's really the end of my presentation today. As I said, it is the core of the business plan. 
what I wanted to do was just quickly go through the timeline that we've, that we've been considering. We already know that we're in March as announcement of current future. By the time that we get to January of 2012, we will be totally in place for the introduction of opening the shop front. We're giving stakeholders 18 months to prepare. The total technical basis for this plan will be finished by the end of June. And the manufacturers can consider their involvement over an 18-month period. So as I said, this is the core of the business plan. We've got to embrace the change, grow the sport, and understand that the landscape has changed. As you leave today, that whole presentation is in a booklet, and you'll be able to go through that in great detail. Thank you very much for your attention. This figure of $250,000, is that the rolling chassis or the complete car? Okay. So the complete car is still going to be at least $300,000, is not it, on your figures? Based on the current engines, yeah. <coughs> um, as I understand, there's going to be a new specification engine allowed in. Does that mean that Ford and Holbrook remain
get racing. It has to look good. It's got carbon fiber, it's got data acquisition, it's got all the things that people are wowed by in terms of the technology level, um, but with a really good, sound, fundamental understanding of what the fans want. And that's, for, from our perspective, this cost reduction will not change. If you're in your grandstand seat at Sandown, you will not know there's been any change to what the car looks like in terms of today. So for us, no way that we're moving away from that authenticity in DNA. Adam Mark Craig Kelly, would you be growing the uh, number of cars on the starting wheel, or would it be uh, for us currently out there? We're going to have more teams, less teams. What's the, the starting number time? You should answer that. I'll answer that one then. Craig, um, no, there's 29 wrecks. Racing entitlement contracts currently in the championship. We have no uh, plan whatsoever to expand on those, and I doubt very much that's a team owner's decision. And I very much doubt the team owners want to increase the number of cars. I mean, if you actually look at it, I often read or hear that um, you know we should be throwing it open to get more entries. Uh, with the exception of NASCAR, I can't think of any other championship in the world today that has as many entries as we have. Certainly, on our level. Professionals, and I'm not talking about weekend warriors that perhaps go out and race you know, once every four months. But in, in, the, in professional motorsport, I, I, with the exception of NASCAR, I can't name another category in the world that has 29 regular starters every round of their championship. So, uh, given the fact we come from a relatively small country in terms of population, only 22 million people, uh, I think that's a pretty amazing standard, a pretty, pretty amazing effort. Um, and uh, I don't see that changing. I've actually fought for a number of years uh, and lost, as I often do, um, to uh, the fact that uh, I'd like to see it come down to 28 entries. But uh, that's not going to happen. Uh, the 29 wrecks are very valuable now. And uh, I can tell you sitting here right now, there's at least uh, three people out there trying to, or if they could, would buy a wreck tomorrow morning if one became available. So, um, 29 is going to be it, and I think we'll probably be it now for quite quite some years into the future. Mark, you've also spoken to a lot of uh, other manufacturers in, in the last few months. Now that you've built it, do you, is your gut feel that they will come? Um, I think so far what has happened is that the level of communication has been good and that the feedback has been good in the way that people assess the sport, you know, it's a mainstream sport, it's had a, you know, in terms of um, the recognisable benefits, I mean, we deliver our ants, guys, I mean, you know, over 280,000 people at Clipsal, 175,000 people at Townsville, 185,000 people in Sydney, it's undeniable as a product that people aren't going to be interested in that delivering a magnet of some description, especially from an automotive industry standpoint. But having said that, um, it will be, again now, us communicating an open door policy and then seeing what happens with that. Um, the board, we've discussed how that actually may be implemented. Tony and I have had a lot of discussions about us having an automotive plan. So in addition to this, that there'll be an automotive plan developed. And in that 18 months of stakeholders looking at it and manufacturers considering it, that we've got effectively a real business case for a manufacturer to come in. And it's all about what that value for money is. If you can run a race team for $6 million and you get a couple of million dollars from a V8 supercar and you've got to attract a couple of million dollars to either car in your garage, 
the whole business case is structured around what's viable in the marketplace, and that's viable in the marketplace. If you can go and have a complete car sponsored under that arrangement, it's, that's, that's commercially viable. Tony, um, what level of interest has actually been expressed by other manufacturers in, in car of the future? Oh, well, I think uh, my comment would be I've been encouraged. I mean, some of them have obviously chosen to spoke through what I call automotive types and, and our other and the team owners. So I hit Mark for his team owners. Some have uh, uh, taken the time and trouble to speak directly with me. Um, and uh, I, I, I think uh, the way Mark's approached this is uh, absolutely correct. The, the door is open, uh, we're open to talk. And um, clearly, um, uh, what Mark alluded to a moment ago is very, very relevant. Uh, if you're a manufacturer, uh, we offer a fantastic base. Firstly, uh, we you know, knock out somewhere around 8, 1.8, 1.9 million people watch the championship each year live. Uh, and then, of course, on top of that, we're actually dominant motorsport category in this region of the world on television. Added to that, of course, not wasted on certain manufacturers, we've now got a massive footprint in the whole of India and Asia um, with uh, ESP and Star. And um, clearly, um, if you look at the world today, I think it's by 2022, 55% of the world GDP are going to come out of that part of the world. So um, I'm sure every manufacturer in the world is looking very closely at that marketplace, and, and, and we're obviously starting to get a reasonably uh, good foothold in there. Having said all of that, I'm well and truly on the record, and I'm going to stay on the record. I am delighted with our current two manufacturers. We've got a good working relationship with them at the highest level. Um, they've done a fantastic job in the championship. And if, through this whole process, I completely endorse Mark's final words when he wrapped up there today. If, through this whole process, all we simply do is get ourselves reorganised to make the racing more viable for our teams over the course of the next two years, then the exercise has been well and truly worth it and we'll, we'll drive off into the sunset um, with uh, General Motors and Ford Motor Company and we'll live happily very, very much ever after because we've proven over 17 years we don't necessarily need eight manufacturers to make a viable product. You know, uh, the British Dream Car Championship has lots of manufacturers in a country of 75 million people, if it gets a crowd of 20,000 turned up, they all go out the back and have a beer and get excited. Um, so you don't necessarily need dozens of manufacturers to end up with a great championship. We have a, a truly great championship. Lots of people in the world, I read a fantastic press article the other day from America saying that they thought it was the best touring car racing they've ever watched on Speed Channel where we are now. So we don't need to be apologetic about what we've got or what we're doing. Um, because what we've got is very, very good. But if others want to come along and join in, we're going to make it as easy as possible for them to join in. Mark, just some nitty-gritty stuff. <laughs> My understanding is that the, the floor pan will evolve into a control floor pan, in fact, you know, that it will be the same for every car, and the roll cage design will be the same. Is that correct? But, well, the floor basically needs to be in the way, Mark. It's, it's only that there's a bit of gap in where we are. So essentially, that's no change. That would be uh, merged into being the same floor. And that's where the rest of the car will be based from because the roll cage will be a 90% roll cage. So the roll cage itself will 
we want for all the things that determine good roll cage design, you know, uh, center of gravity, height, torsional rigidity, weight, all those things. We want to take a lot of the science out of government spending, you know, development money on that. We'll have a 90% spec, and that will then be able to be merged into a Commodore or a Falcon and a Pistons accident. Can I just also add that I think a very important part of where we're going as a court is uh, we are definitely getting closer and closer uh, to the FIA and there is no question that you know, we've got a good working relationship at, at all levels with the FIA now and I think that uh, that that integration of their specification and our specification is going to become a lot closer over the next two or three years. Um,
Mark, Gordon Lomas. Um, given that we're going with 18 inch wheels, where are we at then with um, the uh, overall minimum weight for the car for the future? Um, we've got a target of about 1250 kilos, Gordon. That's, that's um, at the moment um, we think achievable based on, on um, current chassis that are being built. Um, we think that when you reduce the weight, obviously there's some safety issues in that that, that are better, but also um, there's also some good racing quality issues with that. The cars, when, when the cars are heavy and you fire down the inside of someone and make a mistake, the cars have a lot of momentum and, and to actually make the car slightly lighter, um, it, it's, in, it's in the right track, it's down the right trail for, for making the racing better. So that's 100 kilos, that's, that's actually achievable, is it? Yeah, well, that's our target. You know, again, when, when we have our first proper floor done and we do our 90% cage, that'll give us a basis that we can compare against our current numbers. You know, if we end up a little bit out, you know, if, if it isn't quite 1250, then you know the cost. What you don't want is everyone in the industry spending a lot of money to meet a new lower lower weight, which is always expensive. So we'll have a realistic weight applied to the category. Any further questions? Um, you guys obviously got an ongoing program for safety. You talked about uh, further safety uh, in the car. You just touched on it there. What other aspects um, can you recommend put into the, these new cars to improve the safety? Oh, look, it's, it's actually it's quite um, a big program. Adam and uh, Richard Holloway and Jim Stone have been working very hard with the FIA on this. From the FA has been out, you know, we've, we've met with him well, probably three or four times now. Richard Holloway's been the delegate back to the FIA um, for the building of the cars. The objectives that the FIA have got, and, and our objectives are obviously very similar in terms of what we can do from a design standpoint. Um, we've got a working document that's in place. Um, we're actually responding to some of those things at the moment, in specification of materials and driver location, side intrusion. Um, crash impact zones, fuel tank position, lots of things. So we're working very hard on it. For example, you may not be aware we've got a car in Italy at the moment ready to be fully tested by the FIA. So we, driver safety is paramount in our game and uh, everything we can do to try and work with that. And Adam has done a very good job of refocusing the business back onto that since he's come on stream. So uh, yeah, that's uh, obviously you know, that, that one never stops actually. That, that then slips in our organisation, that, that's ongoing and will be ongoing forever. Since the inception of the air supercars that we're right now drive, some manufacturers, Hyundai for instance, make a similar real world drive car which is left hand drive. Is there any possibility of having left hand drive race cars? I think they need to be right hand drive, but again, you can use the architecture. I mean, it's, it's one of those ones where Again, we're opening the shop front. If someone comes to us and says, oh, the only way that we'll be involved is X, Y, Z, then you know, we would have to seriously consider it. But the, the reality is, right, right, rear wheel drive, right hand, um, steering location, right location is important. Do the chassis dimensions, as outlined in Project Blueprint, do they remain or have they been altered to you know, longer, shorter wheelbase track or something? I don't know. No, the numbers are very, very similar. I mean, we, we can cater for pretty much 100 mil bigger than Project Blueprint and 100 mil smaller than Project Blueprint, which basically takes us through the whole evolution of the cars that we currently used and the evolution of 
or we think in cars that, that may be able to be you know, used for uh, the next 10 15 years. And I understand some investigations have gone into this so-called control V8 engine. What is its configuration up beyond being a V8? I mean, is it based on an existing engine or how has that been evolved? Uh, all of the above. Uh, we've looked at engines from around the world that could be used that are currently the race engines that could be tuned to suit our requirements. We've also used um, people in America and Europe to investigate what other engines from a road car standpoint and how we can Australianise those. Um, we've had a lot of contact um, with GM powertrain about you know what could be cherry picked out of their um, current stock and how that might work you know in terms of the core cost and then being able to make them into a race engine here. So there's been a lot of investigation, a huge amount of work on, on what the engine platform could be. And, and again, when you open the shop front. It could be that you know, Toyota comes along with uh, a V8 variant that we have to do the equalisation to to ensure that it's the same sort of output as we currently got. Given that the V8 natural desire is to internationalise the program, is there a proposal that the 14, 15 rounds of, of any championship now be increased in years to come? That's phase two. Uh, yeah, I think that uh, we, we're going through, we're undertaking a fairly detailed analysis at the moment, Brian, and where we now want to go. Uh, we'll carry the future now sort of launched. Uh, the next phase for us as a board is we're um, going to get ourselves knee deep now in what, what our future looks like by say 2013 and uh, we're talking to a number of people in a number of parts of the world now um, that, that level, that interest is growing um, year on year um, and we have to uh, we have to do some really strong homework ourselves uh, about how we do that. We're a very expensive uh, product to move around. You know, it costs, uh, if you take us overseas, I always laugh when people say, I'm going to New Zealand, you know, well, that's easy, that's cheap. It costs us about two and a half million dollars to move just to New Zealand and come back. So, uh, by the time we move our people and out and freight. So, we have to, as a sport, now that we've looked at Car of the future, we've looked at what we might be doing there. Uh, we now have to, I think, spend the next 12 months uh, really trying to work out and bed down where we're going to go for the next 10 years in terms of the championship, uh, how that's going to impact on the Fujitsu series, for example, uh, how that's going to impact on the 29 uh, cars and the teams behind them, and how it's going to impact on uh, you know, the show in Australia. The show in Australia is very, very good now. We've got some uh, wonderful, uh, exceedingly brilliant uh, events. Um, and obviously, top and toe in Australia by Clips or 500 down one end of Adelaide and the Sydney Clips to 500 at the other end of Sydney. Um, so, uh, that uh, that work will now commence. Um, and you know, I pretend to pay for the last ball being on exactly that. And, and, uh, We'll uh, carefully go through that and make an assessment on our, on our future there and work out 
implementation in two or three years' time. Thank you, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, uh, members of our panel. Uh, we'll wrap it up there. I'm sure the four gentlemen uh, will be available for the very brief one on one if required. Uh, thank you again for your attendance today, and uh, congratulations to Mark Scope, who's done a stellar job in the last day of